considering the situation in which we find ourselves. I was listening to a podcast not long ago where someone was outlining some of the challenges that we're facing in our culture, and I want to kind of build on that because I think it was helpful to consider maybe some of the, the sicknesses that we in our American society are facing, and I want to identify them. Uh, first one I want to identify is that we are experiencing as a culture a collapse in social trust. Social trust is a term that I came across uh, just recently. David Brooks wrote this uh, really impressive article in The Atlantic entitled, America is Having a Moral Convulsion. And he spoke of this collapse in social trust. And by social trust, he was just talking about the the way that we rely on each other and trust each other within our society, our trust for institutions, our trust that people are generally working together. He argues rightly, I think, that, that a society is able to work only as well as they trust each other. So for example, we only are able to go to a restaurant because of some degree of social trust. I trust that when I'm at Fuller House, what they're serving me is not taken from roads along the street. And they trust that when I am there, I won't leave before I've paid. There's social trust. Social trust is what allows companies to work with, with contractors, not always having supervisory more, but assuming that they will work well. That's trust. Social trust is what enables us, when we see a new person moving into our neighborhood, to, to greet them and welcome them rather than to treat them as a threat. Social trust is what we need when we are facing some sort of catastrophe, a hurricane or a pandemic, and we're trying to rely on each other. We do that through social trust. Societies held together by trust. And what David Brooks pointed out in this article is that it is at an all-time low in our country, and we are struggling. Trust in institutions, the kind of glue that holds the society together, whether we're talking about the church, political, schools, even marriage, it's gone practically. Trust in each other has been registered as a low. Increasing number of groups, whether we're talking about minorities or the working poor, even people who are just moving out of college, feel alienated from society. And it's not just that people aren't trusting each other, it's actually that people are becoming less trustworthy. Academic cheating has been going up, according to studies. Marital, marital infidelity has been increasing. We are a society that has stopped trusting each other and stopped being trustable. And when social trust diminishes, a society falls apart. So what do we do with that? How do we move forward if that's the case? Second sickness that I think we're facing in our country is very closely related, and that is hyper-individualism. America has always been a society that's based on this idea of the rugged individual. But for many generations, that sense of I am my own person, I have rights, has been kind of balanced out by a sense of commitment to different institutions. We have an obligation to our country or to our community. We have an obligation to our church. We have an obligation to our workplace or to our family. And that allows us to be, while on one hand, autonomous, also committed. But with institutions declining, all that's left is the autonomy. I get to do what I want, and no one else should tell me what to do. Thing is, when we are focusing on autonomy, that means we're also moving away from any sense of commitment. And you cannot have intimacy without commitment. 
which means we're becoming more isolated. Then you just add to that the fact that social media, what does social media do? It gives us kind of this pseudo form of connection. We kind of feel like we're connected to people through Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And that's just enough of the real thing that it allows us to stay apart from each other. And as a result, people are getting further and further apart from each other, further and further isolated. Recently, the Surgeon General spoke of having an epidemic of loneliness. There are an increasing number of people who have no confidence whatsoever that they can share their troubles with. We're seeing despair, depression, a rise of, of drug overdoses because of this loneliness, hyper-individualism. What do we do? How do we move forward and, and heal from that? Third, we are seeing another kind of sickness in our culture that we could call moral anarchy, which by that I mean that, that not that we're amoral, that we don't care about morality, but that we don't have some sort of higher authority for morality that we're judging are right and wrong standards by. So a number of years ago, actually it was 1980, Alistair McIntyre wrote this kind of prescient um, uh, book called After Virtue. And by it, he, he spoke of the, the danger that he saw societies in. He said, even though right now we have some degree of kind of a moral agreement, it's not going to last. Because we've lost any underlying sense of why something is either right or wrong. In previous generations, there was this general agreed upon idea that there was some underlying design, underlying purpose to this world. Think about the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. This belief in creation and design and purpose was the way that people made their moral reasoning. And so that's how they could kind of adjudicate if they disagreed. But McIntyre said, now that we don't have that underlying disagreement, here's the problem. The moment we disagree, we have nothing more to say. One person says, this is right. One person says, no, this is wrong. And they can't convince each other because there's nothing underneath it. All they can do is raise their voices louder and louder, hoping they'll win. Forty years later, we see that very thing, don't we? Our society, again, is not amoral. It cares a lot about right and wrong. Whether you're talking about the right with, say, pro-life, or you're talking about the left with this passion for, for justice, for inclusion, sexuality. We have deep, passionate beliefs about morality and right and wrong, but what do we do when we disagree? Well, we stop being able to convince each other so if we disagree with someone, I'm right and you're wrong, we just start villainizing them. I'm right and you're evil. I'm right and you're Hitler. And what happens is over time, it becomes tribal. There's tribalism. There's just power is what we need because we can't agree. And meanwhile, in this, this place, this situation of moral anarchy, there is a kind of moral aimlessness. We don't have a sense of, of purpose or direction. How do we direct our lives? We're told be ourselves, but who are we supposed to be? We're told to do what we love, but how do we know what we should love if we don't know what is good? And so you see people increasingly having this sense of purposelessness and confusion. How do we find a way forward in a society that has this issue of moral anarchy? That leads to the fourth sickness I think we can see, and that is just a lot of exhaustion. We are living in what one Korean philosopher says, the burnout age. 
It's a burnout society. He says, in, in a previous generations, society would kind of structure their lives based on a certain idea of what should and shouldn't happen. And as long as you stayed within those confines, you knew you were doing things basically well. But we are not that society anymore. Since now it's a society we're supposed to be true to ourselves and we're supposed to achieve, and there is no clarity about what that is, so you will never get there. There's always more achievement that needs to take place. And so there's depression. And what happens as a result of this burnout is people cling to some sort of way of making sense of their life, some, some narrative, something that makes them feel connected to something larger. I call those a God substitute or an idol. And there are a number of those. One is work. There's an interesting article in The Atlantic written a couple years ago by Derek Thompson, who wrote what he called about what he called workism. And notice his language. He says, to the college elite, work has morphed into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Work has become for many our new God. And he goes on to say, a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salary jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. People are getting exhausted by it. It's not just work. You can think of parenting. And in our generation, it seems increasingly the case that some people's lives are defined by trying to make their child happy. I will do anything I can to make my child happy, which sounds selfless and good, except here's the thing. You can't do that. But we can't do that. There's no way we're able to protect our children from becoming depressed, from, from failing, from experiencing suffering. And what happens is the more that we become devoted to that as the thing that drives our lives, the more exhausted we become as we move them from one activity to another activity to another activity to try to protect them. And not only that, but ironically, our kids get stressed out because they feel so much pressure to be happy. We're exhausted. Or think about how the political has kind of moved to front and center of how we have hope for society. The only way we can see society getting better is through the political, which is a depressing thought. But that's how people go. And so what happens then, we have with cable news and social media, it's just fueling the sense that it's all about the politics and it's all about, about the conflict. And, and this thing is the thing that everything will ride upon and people become more and more anxious and more and more angry more and more exhausted, and so do we find ourselves doing late at night, we are just mindlessly scrolling through Instagram or Twitter because we're so tired and yet we're finding no rest. This is an age of exhaustion. How do we find a way forward from that? And finally, the fifth sickness I want to identify in the time that we are in is one that we might perhaps identify as hopeless self-absorption. Because we are so exhausted, there is this growing awareness of the need to care for self, which in some ways is a healthy response, except when it gets moved to its fullness of conclusion, it basically means that this wellness movement is saying the one responsibility you have above all else is to make sure you care for yourself. If you are not doing that, you are doing something deeply wrong. We need to be aware, as Tara Isabella Burton says in her book, Strange Rights of Toxins, whether we're talking about food toxins enter our system or whether we're talking about a toxic environment, a toxic relationship, a toxic work situation. We avoid toxins above all else because the one rule is to care for ourselves. 
which inevitably leads to self-absorption. And underneath that, that self-absorption is a kind of hopelessness, that the reason we're doing this is because there is no hope for anything else. So the best we can hope to do is just to make sure we're as okay as we can make ourselves. These, these are five, there are other things that we can identify, but these are five significant, real, Forces that are at work right now in society around us, and, and undoubtedly we have felt some of these things. They are hard. They are at times dehumanizing. And so why, if that is the situation that we are in, would I say that here, that we are in a time for dreaming, for, for thinking hopefully, and the answer is because I believe that the Bible teaches us that because of Christ Jesus, the answer, the antidote, the cure to all of these sicknesses are found in the church. So last week we spoke of, of the gospel, the, the good news that is the foundation of everything that we as a church are about. The, the news that something incredibly, unthinkably amazing happened when Jesus died and rose from the dead that changed everything, that changed the true story, that when he rose, he was given all authority and power, and everything that his authority and power touches, everything that comes under Jesus' kingship, is changed and made whole. And one day that will be made complete when Jesus returns. But even now, in different pockets, in different moments, Jesus' resurrection power, bringing wholeness, is breaking into the brokenness of this world. And making wholeness, bringing forgiveness, making people changed in a good way. And, and the place that that is happening is the church. I believe that we sometimes have too low of an expectation of what the church might be. I wonder if we use a, a different model of thinking of the church than we sometimes do, if that would help us. So I was reading up on, on medicine in the 18th century. If you were in Edinburgh, say, in the early 1700s, and you were sick, you would have a very hard time knowing what to do. You could go to the random salesperson on the street corner who would give you some sort of oil or ointment and say, this can cure your baldness or cancer, and you would have to believe them if you wanted to try it. Or you could have a doctor who would probably bleed you, which does not seem terribly helpful. You would not know what to do. And there's this one person, John Monroe, who felt, the keen, felt keenly that issue. He had actually been trained in Leiden, the Netherlands, in a place where what we would consider modern medicine was taking place. And he wanted to bring that back, to bring real healing to Edinburgh. And so what did he do? He and the, eventually his son, who was also trained there, started a medical school within the University of Edinburgh, and he started a teaching hospital. And, and the effect of that was that not only was this a place where people were trained with this new understanding of how to bring healing, but it actually was happening before people's eyes. They were seeing that unlike all of these 
other quackeries, that people, when they came to these, this place and experienced this new way of doing things, were changed. And so they wanted to learn, so that when they went to their homes, they could bring that as well. And, and as they looked at a place where healing happened, that healing spreads. And I want to suggest that that is a model for how we are called to be as a church. That the church is this collection of sick people being made whole by Jesus, by the power of the resurrection. And our desire is for the world to be able to see that Jesus is real and that his power is real as he is making things whole through what he is doing in and through us. If you've been with us for any length of time in the last couple of years, hopefully you've heard us speaking of our calling to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And, and this is us just trying to encapsulate this vision that, that our desire is to be so receiving Jesus, so changed by Jesus, being healed by his gospel power, that as that's happening, we are able to begin to reflect Jesus' beauty to the world around us, that others might see it. We want to be kind of this, this living testimony of the reality of the gospel power that is at work in the world. That is our calling. That is what our vision is. That's what we want to do. And I, I want to just help us to see that this is not just our vision. This is actually God's vision for what the church is supposed to be. So there's, there's multiple places we can go, but I just kind of had us look at three passages that, that help us to see this. The first two take place in chapter 60 to 62 of Isaiah. Um, if you were with us over a year ago, you might remember us looking at these passages. In fact, that whole section is all about this, but for time's sake, let's just look at just a couple of them. So first, Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. This is Isaiah the prophet foretelling sometime in the future. And, and he, he describes our present world uh, in this way. The, the earth, you know, darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the peoples. And, and darkness was, as still is in many ways, a, a metaphor for, for hopelessness and aimlessness and, and confusion. It's pretty good description of how you're feeling, I think, in our culture right now. Darkness is covering. But, but notice, as I said, a time will come when God shines. See, the Bible says that the reason there is this darkness of confusion and aimlessness and hopelessness is because of a disconnection from God himself. And he says there will be a time where God shines on his people. Notice, after darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. And in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that what it's talking about is when Jesus comes, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As Jesus comes, he shines the light of God upon people. And, and as it begins with Jesus, we see this, this transformation that begins to take place. But notice as it's saying, I will shine my light upon you. There is a command that happens as well, right at the very beginning. Arise and shine. As, as God's light is shining upon you, O people of God, your calling is now to shine to the world around you. 
And notice the results. Nations will come to your light. People in darkness will see the light that you are shining and they will be drawn to you, kings, to the brightness of your dawn. What it's saying is you will be sent to Jesus. As you receive Jesus and are changed by Jesus, then you will reflect Jesus to the world around you. That's your call. Or, or consider the next passage, just a chapter later, Isaiah 61. These are verses that Jesus reads before a synagogue, and he says, these verses are talking about me. And we see Jesus' words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. Good news. It's, Jesus is talking about how the Lord has, proclaimed, has anointed me to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel being proclaimed it's being proclaimed to the poor. It's being proclaimed to the brokenhearted, the captives. It's described as those who grieve in Zion. These are all different descriptions of God's people who have been brought low and humble. And it says Jesus has come with the power of the Spirit to bring good news to those who are brought low amongst the people of God. And notice what happens to them. To comfort all who mourn, to provide those for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty. I will make you beautiful, Jesus is saying. The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise. I will give you joy and praise and they will be called oaks of righteousness. I will make you not just beautiful, but I will make you righteous in a way that reflects me. And what happens next? They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Do you hear that Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, bringing this resurrection power, and he changes the people. He makes them beautiful. He makes them righteous. And as they are changed, they extend his healing power to the world to come. That's our call. Or we see this in Ephesians. Ephesians, many centuries written later, Paul is writing this letter that even though it's called to the Ephesians, many consider this a circular letter, which meant it was supposed to be passed from one church to another. Because, and that means, in real sense, when Paul is writing this, he could just as easily be writing it to us today. And, and notice what he says. This is a prayer that we have in verse 18. He prays for us, what? That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That is, that you would have this deep, heartfelt knowledge. Of what? Of the hope that you may know the hope to which he has called you, including the inheritance, that your heart might realize here is what's happening through Jesus. But not just that. It's not just the hope of inheritance. And his incomparably great power. I want you to know in the depths of your heart the power that is at work in us who believe. And notice what that power is described as. It is the power of the resurrection. This is the power that rose Jesus from the dead. This is the power that brought Jesus up above all things. That power is at work in you. The risen Jesus and his work and his rule is at work in you. And notice how it goes in the last two verses. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything. He is the king. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Why? For the church. The church is the place that experiences Jesus' resurrection power and authority. The church is where Jesus is bringing healing, but it doesn't end there. The church, which is Jesus' body, 
The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus' body, that is, as Jesus is filling this world, he fills everything in every way. He fills it through the church. The church is his body. The church is his hands and his feet by which he brings people into contact with his resurrection power. The same truth is, is being pointed out here that as Jesus' resurrection power is changing us in the church and making us beautiful, then it is moving us outward so that the world might experience Jesus through us. That is our calling. That the world would experience Jesus and his healing power and the glory of the gospel through us, his church. Our calling is to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And I realize even as we're saying it how crazy that sounds. The, the church is not something that people are thinking highly of right now. And, and maybe some of you can relate. Right now, the church is depicted as a community that is highly judgmental, intolerant, science-hating, prudish, who really are more oriented towards getting political power so that we can tell other people what to do. The church is seen as a place of hypocrisy where perhaps they speak of love and integrity, but in reality we see cruelty and corruption. The church is a place where leaders abuse their power and abuse And I so wish that I could stand up and say, that is just not true. I so wish that. But we know I can't. Because we know there is truth in each of these statements. Some of you are bearing the scars of being hurt by people who belong to the church. And it is awful. It is so against what the church is designed to be. And we as a church need to do better. And of course, I wish there was something I could say that could change that, but obviously I can't. But I want to ask you, before you give up on the idea of the church, to perhaps, perhaps consider things from a slightly different angle. The church, as we've already said, is not a community of healthy people. Church is a community of people who are very sick. I mean, think about it. You are with us as we've been studying Matthew. Who did Jesus call to himself? He called the corrupt, very corrupt tax collector. He called these closed-minded, judgmental fishermen. He, he called a skeptic who had a hard time even believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And he called them apostles. And ever since the church has been this collection of messy, broken, sin-filled people, because Jesus clearly says, all are welcome, no matter who you are or what you have done, if you come to me, I will receive you. And even as Jesus receives people, and even as Jesus begins to heal them and work on them, he does this in a gentle way, not all at once, which means they are in a slow process of changing, which means there is still a lot of sin church, and we know that because we know there's a lot of sin in us, and that means there's still great capacity to hurt people, and that's tragic, 
But just think of this for a moment. Imagine for a moment if you were visiting a cancer ward. A cancer ward, maybe of highly experimental medicine, where only the most terminal patients were there. And you come and you look and you see all of these patients who clearly are, are experiencing the ravages of cancer. And if you conclude, wow, everyone's sick. This is clearly not a good place. They're doing a terrible job. You wouldn't say that. You understand. They're, they're terminally ill cancer patients. But imagine if as you were walking through this ward and talking with people, you have one person after another saying, I am getting better. I am feeling better than I did before. And you even have stories of people who are almost completely healed. You wouldn't say, well, they're still all sick. You'd say, what is going on? And I, I want to suggest to you that if you have eyes to see, there are signs of miraculous light, even in a group of sinners such as the church. I was reading a little while ago um, a column uh, by New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof. And he, though he had some sympathy with some of the criticisms of conservative Christianity, he agreed there are a lot of things that were problematic. He also wanted to push back, and, and here's what he wrote. He said, I have been truly awed by those that I've seen in so many remote places combating literacy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. He, he speaks of one doctor, Stephen Foster, in a rural area in Angola, who has got his own little hospital. He's a surgeon, and and he and his family and some other people are continuing, even though they experience sometimes direct opposition from the Angolan Marxist government, even though there were boa constrictors, even though there was polio for one of the children, they continued on. Stephen Foster was quoted by Christoph as saying, um, we are granted visas by the very people who would tell us publicly, your churches are going to disappear in 20 years, but privately, you are the only ones we know willing to serve in the midst of this and Christoph acknowledged he's just one of many stories. And you get this sense from Christoph that he doesn't quite understand why so many people are doing this. But, but let me tell you what it is, is it is the resurrection power of Jesus. Let me, let me go closer to home uh, talking about us for a moment. Let me, let me share a secret that might shock you. In this congregation, over the last two presidential cycles, there are people who have voted Republican, there are people who have voted Democrat, there are people who voted third ticket, and there are some people who didn't even vote at all. And we still like each other. In fact, we're able to talk with each other about it and not just kind of throw each other away because we disagree. It seems small, except where else in the world right now is that happening? That's the resurrection power of Jesus. I think of myself, having had the privilege now of being here for more than 11 years, and thinking of ways that I have, have grown and changed in such a way that I know that I'm not the person that I once was, and it's because of so many of you, because of conversations and discipleship groups, and us praying for each other, and of us working on things together, of just the encouragement that I get from different people. The power of the gospel of Jesus is at work in us. And I know that my story is not the only one like that. It's the resurrection power 
of Jesus. We are a community of sick people, and yet Jesus is making us well. And it's beautiful. This will sound strange, perhaps, to some of you, but I'm actually, in this moment, more hopeful about the American church than I have been in many years. Which I know sounds strange because we have like the Christian nationalism thing of January 6th. We have just recent Gallup polls saying that less than 50% people for the first time are identifying themselves as members of a church. There seems to be so much to be discouraged by. And in some ways I feel like that's the point. We are being brought low and we have been needing to be brought low for a while. We have been needing to be humbled because we've been getting in our own way. We've been getting in the way of Jesus. And maybe we still have ways to go before we're brought to the point we need to be. But here's the thing. If we can receive this, if we can be humble and let Jesus do the work he is called to do, what might happen? I was struck, it was about a month ago, I was meeting with a number of the pastors in the Hinsdale area from all sorts of different churches. And I've met with some of them before. I don't think I've ever felt the same degree of passionate unity as I felt then, as all of us in different ways were tired and feeling our weakness, and we just felt this increased longing to see be, people be changed by Jesus. And that's power of the resurrection at work. I, I believe that as God does his work on us as a church, as we allow the risen Jesus to touch our lives and change every aspect, he is going to be making us stranger and stranger in, in the way that light is strange in the middle of darkness. But when I'm saying that, I don't want us to think of stranger as us being kind of more holy people, super religious, and, and disconnected from anything that has to do with light. No, in, in a in a situation that is so dehumanizing where people are losing their humanity, Jesus is making us strangely human. Because there is never a person that was more human in this world than Jesus. And Jesus is making us like himself. And that's beautiful. Jesus, in a world of distrust, Jesus extends his welcome and invites us to join him in his strange hospitality. In a society of hyper-individualism, Jesus is forming a strange community of people who are totally unlike each other and inviting us to experience it. In a situation of, of moral anarchy, Jesus invites us to follow him as his apprentices, saying that as you, as you follow me, you will find yourself in a strange way as you lose yourself and come to obey your God. In an era of exhaustion, Jesus invites us to a strange rest of worship and service. And in a situation of hopeless self-absorption, Jesus gives himself and invites us to join him, filled with hope and resurrection in mission to the world. This is the strange humanity, the strangely human change as he is healing us. And it is beautiful. And if right now you're feeling like, 
hey, this is great. I would love to know, get a little bit more clarity about what that means. That is what we will be talking about in the next five weeks. So when we're talking about hospitality and community and discipleship and worship and mission. But for right now, as we conclude, I want to ask you once again to just let yourself To dream as we think about just how good Jesus is, just how powerful the power of the resurrection is. To dream what we might become as Jesus does his work in us and how we might serve the world around us that so deeply needs Jesus. And even as we dream, I want to invite you to pray, to pray with me that Jesus would do his work now.